Good morning, I'm Mark Blair, and today we'll be reading Matthew 21, verses 1 through 22, which can be found uh, on your pew Bible, on page 826. Again, this will be Matthew 21, verses 1 through 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Jimmy. Um, You know what, if you're stuck outside and you don't know where to go because you don't see any seats, there are some seats right down front in the front row. That's also called the spit zone, but you can come right down here. There's also a room, it's an overflow room in the back, so if you're outside and you can't find a place to seat, there is an overflow room 
where you can go and uh, watch the message. Let's start off and pray one more time here together. Father, I do thank you for this incredible week. Thank you for this holy week, this Easter week. Father, it's a week in which your name is going to be proclaimed and lifted high. You are going to be celebrated. The resurrection will be celebrated. That the message of God's amazing grace is going to be spoken across the world this week. It's going to be spoken in house churches, in prison camps, in stone cathedrals, in bombed out churches in the Ukraine. It's going to be proclaimed in storefront churches, in some cases in slave quarters, in thatched roof churches all throughout Africa and Latin America and South America. It's going to be proclaimed in the underground church of China and elsewhere. It's going to be proclaimed here at Hope Community Church. So, Father, may we understand this week that we are a part of a greater church that exists around the world. And so may we find great hope and joy in proclaiming the truth of the gospel with the greater church this week. And now, Father, in this time, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak deeply to our hearts, open up our minds and hearts to receive what you have for us this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Town that's on a river up in Illinois... Uh, it's on the Mississippi River. There's lots of commerce that takes place on the river, and so to make sure that the barges and the ships can go through the, it's constantly dredged just for sand on the bottom. And so these, the, these dredgers will come, and they'll pull up the sand, and they'll dump the sand on the shore. And when they dump the sand on the shore, it creates, uh, in one sense, something that could be great fun, in one sense, something that could be a great danger. Because it creates these mountains of sand, which would naturally draw any child to want to come to play on these mountains of sand. It also creates these voids because the sand is dumped when it's wet, and there's times in which you can have these big pockets uh, that as the sand dries that, that, that are actually underneath. So you're told, don't ever walk on the sand, because if you walk on the sand, if you walk on a void or a pocket, it can easily collapse, and you can just go straight down, and you can die, because you can be crushed by the sand. You can drown in sand. Two young brothers go out one day, and they're playing, and they've been told a thousand times by, by their parents, don't play on the sand. But at dinner time, they don't come back. The parents become worried, so they find some friends, and they go out in a search party. And it's not long before they come upon these sand dunes and they see the younger brother. He's buried right up to just about his chest. He's unconscious because the pressure of the sand has pressed so hard upon him that he's, that he's just completely unconscious. So they begin to dig frantically. And when they get down to about his waist, he suddenly regains consciousness. And they're yelling at him, where's your brother? An amazing act of sacrifice as the sand begins to come in, the older brother pushes up his younger brother, puts him on his shoulders, and saves his life, but gives his own in the time. That's what this week is about. This week is a week in which we stand on the shoulders of Jesus. The entire week, we're going to be standing on the shoulders of Jesus. And the only reason why we can have life in the midst of our sin is because we stand upon his righteousness. We stand upon his perfect life and what he did for us. This is Holy Week. This is the start of Holy Week. It's such an incredible time of year. This is the most important week of the entire year. It's amazing in the Gospels how much of the Gospels, they're just about this very, very last week in Matthew. We're just in chapter 21. 
There's going to be many more chapters that are just about this week. You think about Mark. I mean, he comes in, and there's this amazing time where he comes in, and he comes in actually in chapter 11, but there's going to be actually 16 chapters, so so much of Mark is just about this week. And Luke, he comes in, and he, and I mean, like, he's welcome. It's in ch chapter, uh, ch chapter 19, and there's going to be 24 chapters. And John, he comes in in chapter 12 of 21, so almost half of John. Almost half of the Gospel of John is just about this week. There's so much that takes place. It is so incredible. And so this week we're going to walk through this passage. And it's, it's a strange passage in, in a lot of ways. Because it seems like there's some negative things in this passage. It's like, well, you know, we want to be so positive and so positive about, you know, about everything. And yet we come to this passage and it's like, okay, did the Lord kind of lose it when he flips over tables in the temple? Uh, does he cross some lines there? And he sees a fig tree, and he doesn't heal a fig tree that seems to be not doing its job, but he curses it, and it dies. And it seems like things don't seem to be going very well in this chapter. But there is so much here that speaks so deeply. So we're going to do this actually uh, backwards. <clears throat> we're going to start off, we're going to talk about the fig tree a little bit, and then we're going to talk about the fact Hosanna, Hosanna. So... We're going to talk about the fact that there's no fruit on the tree, there's no worship in the temple, and there's no stallion for a king. So let's start off. There's no fruit on the tree. So it says this, it's the morning, and Jesus is going to go back into Jerusalem. He's had one night just to rest a little bit, and he's on the way back in, and he sees a fig tree. He says that he's hungry. He sees a fig tree by, by, by the wayside, and he goes to it, and he finds nothing on it, only leaves. And he says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withers at once. Mark tells the same story, and Mark says it's withered from the roots. I mean, it is gone, it is dead, absolutely forever. Every miracle of Jesus all throughout the Gospels bring healing. This is the only miracle of Jesus, this is the only story that it brings destruction. So why would Jesus bring destruction and not healing? Because he's warning us about the coming judgment. Because so much of life that we live, it seems to be all about appearances. We do so much and we make such great efforts to make ourselves look good in so many ways. And yet you know and I know that so often what people put forth is not the way that their life is actually going. You could look at somebody's Instagram or their Facebook, and it looks like they have the happiest life in the world, and yet you might know them, and you might say, you know what, I know their situation. I don't think that they're really as happy as they look on Instagram. Uh, I think that there might be some issues in their life, but we are so often, we are all about appearances. It's interesting because the fig tree is a picture of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, it's talked about, hey, you know what, that, that Israel is like a fig tree. You could go to passages out there like Micah chapter 7, where Micah speaks about this, and he says this. He laments that he came to glean from the fig tree because he was hungry for, for all of these figs, but it says this. There were no first ripe figs that my soul desires. And then he just, I mean, like explains it immediately. He says, for the godly have perished from the earth, and the land is full of this just awful violence. This is not the justice that the Lord craves. And so the fig tree was a picture in one sense, actually, of Israel. So Jesus is hungry. 
Figs are delicious. And so Jesus wants to go take off of this fig tree. It's interesting because this takes place around March. And the figs aren't actually expected until around June. So it would be a little bit unusual, the fact that there would actually be figs. But the fact that there's a lot of leaves on the tree seems to say, well, there might be figs or there might be some sign that the figs are yet to come. And so Jesus approaches it and sees that it's all leaves and no figs. It's a picture of promise without fulfillment. It's a picture of profession without practice. You see, one thing that we need to just constantly come back to is, I think that we make assumptions oftentimes about people's backstage based upon their front stage. This is a message I preach every week in my job at Pastor Serve as I share, share with pastors. It's very easy to see things that look really good up front and we make assumptions about those things. We think, wow, I, I heard this person speak. They must be an amazing person. They must be incredibly wonderful. They must have everything in their life together. But it's amazing. We, we don't know anything about their backstage. We don't know how they treat their spouse. We don't know how they treat their children. We don't know how they spend their money. We don't know their thought life. We don't know anything about them, but we make assumptions. We do so much of that, and that can lead to a place that can be extremely, extremely dangerous. Because Jesus is making very clear, it's not just leaves that he's after. He's after actually the fruit. And the scriptures talk about this, right? I mean, like in John 15 and like in James 2, it's like, okay, faith, faith without works is dead. We've got to have fruit. There have to be things there. But we can't make assumptions that there's fruit just because of the leaves that we might see in somebody's life. So we see somebody and we think, wow, that person's incredible. They're, they're a member of Hope Community Church. And they, they serve a lot. I see them passing things out. I mean, they, you know, they may take up the offering. I bet you that they give a great deal. They're at your prayer services. That's absolutely wonderful. So we oftentimes make assumptions about that person's life. Those things are all important, but those things are leaves on the tree. Anybody can do those things. The question we have to ask ourselves, are, are, is there actually fruit in our life? Are there figs on the tree, not just leaves? And so Jesus is trying to help us just drill down a bit deeper to say, go beyond appearances. It's not just appearances. You might have the most leaves on the tree than anybody of your life. And Jesus says, I want you to dig down just a little bit deeper. And so Jesus curses the tree. It dies. And the disciples ask a fascinating question. We expect them to say, why would you do that? I don't get it. That's not what they say. They say, how did you do that? It's a fascinating question because it's almost like, okay, is there any way that we can do that too? That was a pretty cool trick, Jesus. Can we do something like that too? And then Jesus explains to them. He says, you know what? Let me, let me just use this then as a teaching moment. And he then promotes trust in God in a, very, in a very, very strong way that's positive. If you have faith, and then also on that dark side, he says, and if you don't doubt, you can say to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Again, interesting that Jesus would say, you can say to this mountain, not say to a mountain, but this mountain. Because he's standing between the temple mount and the Mount of Olives. And so when Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, he's either pointing at one or the other. He's going to say, he's going to, I mean, it's a real life object lesson. You can say to this mountain, you can say to the Mount of Olives, 
be cast into the sea and it will be done. Or you can say to the Temple Mount, which would be really interesting if he said that, because it's almost like he's trying to come against just man's religion, which is going to tie into the story before this. Because the fig tree and what has happened there is a picture of what has just taken place at the temple the day before. And so we come to this, the fact that there's, there's no worship in the temple. It says, as Jesus comes in, he drives out all of those who sold and bought in the temple. He, overturned, he overturns all of these tables and the seats of those who sold these pigeons. And he said to them, and it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The leaves can see, you know, that it just concealed that there were no figs on the tree. And the glory of the temple concealed the fact that there was no true worship in the temple. This is an act of violence. It is. But it's not sin. It's done in a spirit that is absolutely right, which we'll talk about. This is not the first act of violence in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 2, he did the exact same thing. He goes in, he sees the corruption at the temple, he overturns all these tables. People say, well, it's just the same story twice. It's not the same story. He did it at the very, very outset of his life, and then again at the very start of the last week of his life. It's fascinating because he does it at the very start of his life in John chapter 2, and yet we see that while there's some things put right for a while, people eventually go back to the same sin in which they were in. Isn't that the way that life works? We can feel corrected. We can feel like, gosh, I will never do that again. But it's so easy to go right back into the exact same thing. People so often go back. If you were to watch, if, if, if you were to walk in to see this temple, it, it would be absolutely stunning. It was white marble and it was gold. And you have people that speak about it. It's like Josephus said, it's like a mountain range on fire. It is just absolutely stunning. I mean, the temple was glorious just to look at it. So you think about these pilgrims, 2.7 million pilgrims would come each year at Passover. And you think about them as they approach this temple and they see this site. It is absolutely spectacular. Inside, there are four courts. Now, it's a massive temple. You have the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and then the court of the priests. And it's interesting because you can only go into certain courts, and if you try to go beyond the court where you're supposed to go, it can be death. You know, it's like in Acts 21, they're like, hey, Paul, you took, you took actually this guy, Trophus, into this court that he wasn't supposed to be in. And so they try to put Paul to death because he goes into the wrong court with this outsider. So, I'm, you know, so, like I'll, you know, so like if you're a Gentile, you can only go into that first court. If you're a woman, you can go into the first two. If you're a male Jew, you can go into the first three. If you're a male Jew priest, you can go into each court. Now, the size of the courts are staggering. The court of the Gentiles is 350 yards by 250 yards. It's over three football fields long by two football fields. So you think about that. It's staggering in size. This is the temple. So if you had thought, well, I don't know how large the temple was. Maybe it's like the size of this church building right here. No, no, it is, it is a staggeringly large building. It's, it's unbelievable. But you think about the court of the Gentiles. 
And they would have like 2.7 million people passing through there at once. So it's, it's, it's just a crazy thought. It's Passover. So if you come to Passover, you're going to bring an offering. You're going to bring an ox, a sheep, or a goat. You're going to bring something that is unblemished because you're going to come that week and you're going to make a sacrifice for you and your family's sin. Now, there is massive corruption taking place because there was a market where you could buy these things. You could buy these things. So there's always the fear of, well, you know what? I, I, I could bring an ox, a goat, or a sheep, or a lamb. I could bring these things to be a part of this Passover. But once you got there, there was, there was this official inspector, and he would inspect your offering. And if there's any blemish whatsoever, it's, hey, you know what? This, this is not going to work. You're going to have to buy one of ours. So the Sanhedrin had created this market that, that was up on the Mount of Olives. So it's way, way up on the Mount of Olives. And they say, you know what? If, if you don't have the right offering, you can go up there and buy it. So in 30 AD, you, you, you have the high priest Caiaphas, who is, who is as corrupt as they get. It's, I'm really, it's, it's like the mob. He says, hey, you know what? Let's, let's have our own way to make some money off of this. Let's move uh, kind of these markets. Now, I want to be actually in charge of these markets now. Let's move them inside of the court of the Gentiles. And when you get here in the midst of Passover, if you want to buy an offering, you can buy the offering right here. But what they did was they charged exorbitant fees. They charged crazy amounts. The poorest of the poor people might just have a dove. That's the only thing that they could possibly afford. And we're told, in all, you know, there, there's lots of stories about this in literature, the doves at this time were sold by Caiaphas for 20 times more than they were sold for, I mean, like all throughout the year. It's like you're in a movie and they charge eight bucks for a Coke, and you're like, really? Really? Or it's like after a big, big tornado and you need, need to have water, and there's somebody that, you know, sells cases of water for $100. And you think, that's just wrong. After a tornado, you don't sell cases of water for $100. Well, you don't sell these things for these crazy amounts in the midst of Passover, but that's what was happening. Massive corruption. There's more. When you come in, you have to pay the temple tax. It's, and it was not crazy expensive. It's about two, two, you know, two, two or three days wages. But people didn't carry shekels back then. They had Roman money. So you had to go and you had to actually exchange your money. And they would take a fee off the top of about 25% just to change your money. So you know, you know what, it's easier just to bring money because we know that if we have our own offering, they're going to find some blemish because every time they find some blemish, they're going to find something because you have all of these inspectors. And so you come in, first thing you have to do is you have to change your money and you're going you're gonna to lose a lot in that process. And then you have to go and you have to buy some type of an offering. And things were sold at just ridiculous prices. That's what Jesus comes into. That's what Jesus walks in. He walks into extreme corruption. This is to be a place of worship and prayer. This is to be a place that honors the Lord God. And Jesus comes in and he sees what's happening. And he, he, he drives and listen. This didn't happen. So like you might have like in your mind, well, okay, uh, he flips over a table, and, and, and then he just moves on. This probably took hours. He's flipping tables. It's a massive area. 
It's a massive market. Corruption is all over the court of the Gentiles. It's going to take him some time to walk around and to flip these tables and say, get out of here. This is, this is God's house. This is to be a house of prayer. It's incredible the fact that he says, you know what? Just because it looked amazing as you walked up, don't think that what you actually have here is going to be the worship and praise of the Lord. Because the building looked spectacular, but what took place inside was not of the Lord. That's still true today, isn't it? I'll tell you what, I have preached in churches in Haiti that are destroyed and run down and you walk in, and some of the greatest worship of my life has been in those churches. It's just, it just blows you away. Recently, I went to work with a church, and you pull up to this church, and I mean, my, my mouth just dropped open. It was just like, this might be the largest church I've ever, I mean, just gigantic. They had just put on a $32 million edition youth wing. I mean, it was like, this, this cannot be possible. I mean, you know, I mean, like stoplights all, all, all over the campus. Go in, begin to work with this church. It's one of the most corrupt churches I've ever worked with. I mean, a power grab, uh, things behind each other's back, which was just, it was just awful. And so it would be so easy to drive past that church and go, wow, wow, look at this building. And yet it's going to conceal the fact that there's no worship taking place inside that building. We make so often, we judge things by appearances. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Just because there's a lot of leaves on the tree doesn't mean there's figs. And just because it's a spectacular building doesn't mean that there's worship taking place inside. Jesus says, I want you to go beyond appearances. Jesus says, I want this to be a worshiping place. And so he drives him out because he wants this to be a place where the right things happen. So this disruptive action, this violence, this thing that he does, why, 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 you know, why? Because he has a zeal for the house of God. He cares about all things about the Lord. He knows that he knows that there's a lack of prayer within the house of God. He fights for justice for the poor. He knows the poor are being exploited. He knows that doves are being sold for 20 times what they're worth. And so he's fighting for the rights of the poor. He's concerned about the Gentiles because the Gentiles want to come to worship the Lord. This is the only place where they can go. I mean, like if you're Jewish, you're thinking, man, this is, this is a corrupt court. They could go on to these other courts. But if you're a Gentile, you're, you're stuck here. So Jesus is fighting for the rights of the Gentiles, which is so significant. It's interesting because Mark tells this exact same story, and then Mark adds that he says, hey, this is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is making very clear, I want to fight for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Jesus fights because those that are, are actually in charge of this temple have made things just for themselves. It's not for the nations. It's not for the Gentiles. It's not for the poor. It's really just about them. And Jesus is going to fight against them. And then after he cleanses out the temple, he takes his rightful place as Lord of the temple. You know what, a hymn that I used to sing as a small child, which I used to hate to sing because it has 14 verses. It's by Charles Wesley. Please let's don't ever sing this here. It's the hymn, Jesus, Meek and Mild. 
Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. And you read this story about how he takes very, very possibly hours to drive out these people that were corrupt. Jesus comes and he basically cleans out the mob. The mob had taken over the temple and Jesus drives them out. It's incredible. It's an act of courage. It's an act of love. It's an act of grace. It's an act of care. That's the Jesus that we need to have in our minds. And what's amazing is after he drove them out, it says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Wow. So just in that time, it goes from a place of corruption to a place of healing. And that is what Jesus longs for us. Jesus longs to take the corruption, the heartache, the sin, the failures of our life and to bring us hope and to bring us joy. And then finally, there's no stallion for a king. So we go back to verse one. So they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives and then Jesus sent two of his disciples. Go, to the, oh, go, go, go over here, at, you know, actually this village and you will find a donkey tied with a colt and just untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says, uh, you know, what's this for? Say to them, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So significant. Say to them, the Lord needs them. Curios, Adonai, which means the Lord. Now listen, so often all throughout the Gospels, Jesus has made very clear, we aren't at the point yet where we can tell everybody who I am. I don't want to tell everybody yet who I am. So I want to tell some very, very small crowds, but I don't want you to go really big yet. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the person. This is the guy. Because Jesus knew that the timing had to be right. So last week, we heard a great message actually from Adam, and he talked about the blind men on the road, and they were crying out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. That's the passage. That passage is the hinge in the Gospels. That passage is where everything changes, because Jesus has been saying, hey, listen, don't tell everybody who I am. I really don't want to go there yet. And then these men use a messianic title for the first time, Jesus, son of David, you're the Messiah, you're the King, you're God, you're Lord. Jesus, have mercy upon us. Jesus, Son of David, Messiah. And Jesus says, yes. It's him. For the first time in the Gospels, he says, yeah, it's me. Hey, God, Jesus, yes. That was the first time. So when he says, go and get this donkey, and tell them that the Lord, he's saying, guys, it's out in the open. Now, can you imagine his disciples, their excitement? They've been waiting for this. Well, it's not time yet. Time's going to come, but it's not time yet. And now, this is the proclamation. It's time. King, God, Lord. And Jesus says, yes. Well, he knows this area. And so he will come in on a donkey. Now, one of the great paradoxes in Scripture he is finally proclaiming that he's the king. Shouldn't he come in on a white stallion? Wouldn't it make more sense if he had a majestic horse that he would ride into? Why in the world a donkey? Who rides donkeys? I'll tell you who rides donkeys. Slaves ride donkeys. The poorest of the poor ride donkeys. 
So why would Jesus ride a donkey? Because it's the ultimate paradoxical statement. I am the king of king, kings and I'm the Lord of lords. And I'm going to come to you gentle, humble, and lowly riding on a donkey. I'm going to come to you as a servant king to give you hope and to give you life. So the people shout, they proclaim, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is loving, gentle, humble, but it's, but it's absolutely time to proclaim who he is. Jesus is saying, listen, here's the deal. I want to come in in a way that you're going to either love me or you're going to hate me. I know that a lot of you want me to come in on a stallion. You want me to come in and just overthrow Rome. I know that's what you want. But that's not going to help your deepest problems. If I come in and if I overthrow Rome, you're still going to have your guilt. You're still going to have your shame. You're still going to have your, your I mean, all, all of these issues in your life. That's not going to fix those issues. If I come in as a humble king ready to give himself over to death for you, that is the only thing that's going to really address the deepest problems in your life. And so Jesus comes in knowing, hey, you know what? I want to make it a situation where you're going to love this or you're going to hate me. It's a lot like he talks about actually in Revelation where it's like, I wish that you were either hot or cold. Nobody likes food that's lukewarm, right? You can eat hot food. You can even eat cold food. But man, if it's lukewarm, if it's just tepid, it's just no good. Jesus says, I want you to be either hot or cold. But if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I want you to love me or hate me. Don't like me. Don't patronize me. Don't use my name when it's convenient and then turn your back on me just constantly. Either surrender everything to me or hate me. But I'm going to create such a crazy paradoxical situation in which the king of kings is going to ride in on a donkey. Because any general that rides in the battle on a donkey is going to be slaughtered. There's no question about it. And Jesus is making this very clear. So why, 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 why in the world? Because he's proclaiming the gospel to us. Because sin is when the servants put themselves in the place of the king. Jesus is going to say, this is salvation. I'm going to put myself, the king, into the place of the servants. Because I have lived the death, I, because I have lived the life that you should have lived, I'm going to die the death that you should die. As the ultimate king, I am going to take your place so that you will know that you will be saved through weakness, not through strength. You see, every religion says, you know what, work harder to be better, work harder, try harder just to be better and better and better. And Christianity says, release that and embrace your weakness. Because only at that can we truly submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. What's the deal with the palm branches? Why, why wave palm branches? It's a great question. The answer is I don't exactly know. But here's something that I do know. In the scriptures, in Psalm 95, Isaiah 55, it, 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 it says that one day there will be the worship and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ and all 
the mountains and the hills will burst into song. But listen, that's not a metaphor. One day when we finally, when things are finally made right in this world and Jesus Christ is finally enthroned, the mountains and hills are going to burst into song. If they do that, imagine what we are going to do. And then it says, every tree, every tree in the world is going to stand up before the Lord and clap its hands. Isn't that a great picture? Every tree one day is going to clap its hands before the Lord. If every tree is going to clap its hands, what will we do? It's an incredible thought. As I was thinking about this passage, uh, I texted a good friend of mine. His name is Scotty Smith. said, hey, man, I'm preaching this morning on Matthew 21. Would you pray for me? Scotty's been a dear friend for a long time. Uh, he's a pastor in Nashville. Uh, right by the church uh, where this week there was chaos as six people were shot and killed. And he was very, very acquainted with the pastor and the, the pastor's little girl. Um, he's been right in the midst of that this week. And so I just asked him, hey man, how, how, how are you? And would you please pray for me? I want to preach this morning. He sent me back this text this morning. And the easiest thing would be just, I think, just to actually read it to you. Scotty said this to me this morning. When I think of palms today, I don't think primarily of the long green branches that we will wave, but I think of the bottom side of our hands. This week, it was palms covering mouths and faces in shock and trauma on Monday. Palms engaged in courageous rescue and compassionate care that horrific morning. Palms reaching out to comfort the inconsolable with wordless hugs and cascading tears. The palms of the church extended to serve and to give and to hold and to care for one another. I thought about palms lowering loved ones and little ones into fresh graves. But mostly, I thought about Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Jesus, I think about your palms. From holding the reins of a foal to washing the feet of your 12 disciples to being bound to the cross, you have come to save us, redeem us, and make us yours. Oh, Jesus, only you can make slaves of sin, fear, and despair in the prisoners of hope. You have, you are, and you will forever. And so because of that, I lift my palms to you in worship and surrender. Powerful. That might have been deeper than the text that you sent to your friend this morning. I don't know. <laughs> don't be fooled by appearances. We have to go deeper. We have to understand that Jesus wants to give us new life. The gospel must be preached. It's interesting, but what, what do you think it would look like if Satan took over Kansas City? Satan just had, I mean, he had his way in Kansas City. He took over everything. You think, oh my gosh, there would be murder and crime and rape and divorce and abuse and exploitation and I mean, it would just be darkness, and 
the church would collapse and nobody would be in church. It would be the worst thing in the entire world. And I would respectfully, I would just disagree. I think if Satan took over Kansas City, there would be no broken marriages, no broken families, no crime, no divorce. Every church would be full. And the gospel would never be preached. Because we convince ourselves we don't need the gospel, we're doing just fine. That would be a ploy of Satan. Because we're not doing just fine. We need Jesus desperately. And so Jesus rides in as the king, as the king on a donkey, as the great servant king, that we could have hope in life. And that brings us to the Lord's Supper. Make no doubt about it that as we come forward this morning to take the bread and the cup, you are standing on the shoulders of Jesus. If you're still contemplating, I don't know where I am with the Lord, we are so thankful that you're here. Thank you for coming. This is a safe place to come and explore the claims of Jesus. But we would just ask you, just, just stay in your seat. And there's prayers and things actually on your worship guide that you might want to just read through. And this might be the day for you that you actually, for the first time in your life, that you surrender your life to Jesus. And if that's you, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. But this is a day that we come standing on the shoulders of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we realize, we understand that you came as the greatest servant king of all time. You came as the king enthroned and yet you came on a donkey as a servant. Father, forgive us for being all, all, just, just, just all about appearances. We are about the glory of the church so often. We're about uh, big, big, big leaves in our lives. And yet, Father, those things hide so much of our dysfunction, so much of the fact that there's not fruit in our lives. Father, today, uh, we ask you to go deeper into our souls, that we would live for you in such a way so that there would be fruit in our lives and that there would be worship in our hearts. And Father, thank you that in the midst of, of death, that you pushed us up so that we could know life, that we could stand on your shoulders, and yet you would take the death in our place. Father, this week I pray that that would just resonate on our heart constantly over and over again because we need the King of kings and Lord of lords. We do lift our palms to you. We thank you that one day that those green palms are going to clap their hands and we will do much more in your presence. We await that day with great anticipation. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. When you're ready, you come.